What would you say is our greatest need as human beings? Just ponder that for a moment. I know it would be probably easy to, to say right away, well, of course, food, water is our greatest need. That's often what you think of, right? Is, I mean, if you don't eat, you start to starve. If you don't have water, you start to, uh, to die of thirst. So that is a, a life necessity. There's no arguing that fact, food and water. Um, how about uh, shelter on a stormy night like last night? Pretty big need. I think it would be arguable that that's a pretty basic necessity is is shelter. What else? Clothing? Some would say that's optional. But generally speaking, we need clothing too, right? Clothing, shelter, food, water. Those are often listed as the main things. But I'm persuaded that actually is more temporary kind of stuff. That there's something more needed that is long-term that every one of us has that without it, our lives truly are miserable and we truly are dying apart from it. You know what I'm talking about? It's forgiveness. The need for forgiveness. The longing for forgiveness. And I would suggest if you have a pulse here today, you have a need for forgiveness. It's a basic need of humanity. And it's one that many people neglect, many people just kind of ignore or, or try to numb over the facts of longing for forgiveness because as broken, fallen, sinful people, there's a longing for it. And sometimes that longing is something that goes undefined or unexplained, but it's in us. We long for it, and sometimes we don't even realize it. Even Ernest Hemingway recognized this. In one of his books years ago, he wrote this story about a father who got into this dispute with his son named Paco. And this was in a Spanish little town in Spain. And Paco, very, very common name over there at the time, Paco ran away from home. And in their dispute, you know, time goes on and the father searched for his son and couldn't find him. And really, after months of being gone, the father kind of had a last ditch effort of trying to reunite with his son. And, and he put an ad in the newspaper, so the story goes. And he, he, in the ad, this is what he wrote. He said, Dear Paco, please meet me at the newspaper office on Wednesday. All is forgiven. Signed, Dad. Well, that Wednesday, the father showed up at the newspaper office to meet his son Paco, and there were something like 800 young men named Paco <laughs> waiting to find forgiveness from their dad. I think he speaks to something there. We have a longing to be forgiven. Maybe you come here today and you know it. You know it well. Maybe you've been numbing over that reality and you're just kind of going through the motions. You're here in church today, but you, you, you don't really, really expect to be forgiven because where you've been and what you have done and the sins of your past and maybe the sins of your present are overwhelming you this day. And if so, I want you to know you're not, you're not alone in this. As we study this, we're going to continue to study it today. I want to open scripture again to, to Luke chapter 15. I encourage you to get the worship Bible out. And last week we gave some, some clarity to focus in, in this parable told by Jesus 
And what happened just before it? What comes in, in the context, which is so important? And we focused in to see where do we fit into this picture? We continue that today. And as we read the book, the, the, the prodigal God, and, and as, as really that setup has been made there, that when Jesus tells this parable and when he's speaking, there really is an audience that is varied. You've, you've got the, the sinners and the tax collectors, and then you've got the, the religious types, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're all there. And, and really the context here of what Jesus is speaking to in this parable is not just about one son, it's really about two sons that are lost, and even in our Bible where it says the parable of the lost son, if you've got the same translation I do, uh, really isn't quite telling the whole story here. There's two lost sons, and today we're going to look at the first lost son. Next weekend, we're going to take a closer look at the older lost son. But for today, let's look at this again. The parable of the lost son, as it says in the NIV, that Jesus continued. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. You probably learned this by now that to go to your dad and say, give me my share of the estate is the same as telling your father you wish he were what? You were dead. It would be tantamount to that. And and really culturally, the father would have every reason to just pretty much knock that, that kid out of the house on a rail and not give him a dime. And yet in Jesus' story, Jesus says the father actually wishes or grants his wish. He, he divides his property, his estate, and, and gives the son that, that money and that property. And, and it's just not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country, he moves out of the house, he moves away, he's got visions of grandeur, he's like, I've got all these resources, I am going to go have some fun. And so he does, he gets out of the house, we don't know the whole context of where the tension comes from, but many of us have lived it, and we know how that tension can develop in relationships that get strained in a household. And he goes off for a distant country, and there it says, he squanders his wealth in wild living. Insert here many visions of what we know that could look like. And for many of us, those visions aren't just conceptual. We maybe have lived them with our past, the decisions we've made, whether intentional or in tunnel vision, like seems to be the case with this son. All he can see is he wants to be happy. He wants to please his sinful nature. And it's going to take him to some places and circumstances that he doesn't really care. Because after all, he's already told his father, I wish you were dead. And with him out of the way, it really doesn't matter now. And with that, we get a picture of what's really going on here. Because in our relationship with God, and we say to the Father, I wish you were dead. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. Thank you very much. And we go our own way. And that can take us in a lot of different directions. It looks different for a lot of different people. But often at the heart of it is a numbing effect of trying to just squelch the guilt in our lives. And, and you know, the, the psychologists call it the shame cycle. Is What we do is we act out. And then from that acting out brings this sense of guilt and shame. And the way that many people then deal with that guilt and shame is they act out again to numb themselves to the guilt and the shame. And so this cycle goes round and round and round and it spirals further and further and further and further out of control until finally the money is gone. 
And finally, there's nothing left. And finally, we wake up and we say, how in the world did I get here? What am I thinking? Sin costs a lot. It always does. And it leaves us in a very dark, hurting place. So it is with the son. He wakes up and he realizes, what do I do now? Verse 14, I've spent everything. If that wasn't bad enough, then famine hits. Circumstances get even worse, so he can't even there rely on himself. He's like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll get a job and I'll support myself and, and maybe I'll, I'll just try to pretend like everything's okay. But that doesn't work either. There he wakes up in a pigsty, and he's longing for the pig food. Now, I, I, I grew up in, you know, in rural Minnesota. In fact, some of my relatives, I'll share this, were pig farmers growing up, and I, I'd visit the farm all the time. I'd play around the farm, and you know, pigs not only stink, they're a mess, and, and yes, they do love playing in the mud. It's a way of keeping cool, but you know what? I saw what the pigs ate when I was growing up. My, my uncle... Um, Harlan and, and my aunt Pauline, they would, they would bring in, they had a, a deal with the local dairy, and when they had milk that went sour, they would ask if they could have that delivered. And they'd have truckloads of sour milk, and, and they'd actually just throw the cartons of that milk, and those pigs would go to town on that stuff. They loved it. And I remember thinking as a kid, that does not look appetizing at all. Pig slop is not pretty. And the fact that this young man is at a point in his life where the food that the pigs were eating looked appetizing to him, that he longed for that. Now you understand how ugly life had become for him. You know, we can really set that up, and I believe Jesus was as well, as a metaphor of how sin really taints our senses, where we can't even see clearly anymore. The most grotesque, ugliest things become beautiful to us because we're so desperate and we're so in need and we're so empty. And so it is. He's empty. And he finally comes to a place in his life of repentance. Now this is huge because notice what he says. When he came to his senses, which would suggest if he came to his senses when he was caught up in this lifestyle, he was what? out of his senses, right? Really living a senseless life. He had numbed himself to reality. And, and when he wakes up in that desperate place, when he comes to his senses, Jesus says, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. He realizes he does not deserve it. He's not going back to his father thinking, oh, his father will love him back and welcome him back in the family. He'll get all the money. No, he's not expecting that at all. Because he realizes in his sin, in his despair, in his rebellion, and wishing his father were dead, he, he deserves nothing. You know, true repentance gets that. And, and when Jesus, just before this, had told those those previous parables, and we, we learned this last week as we looked at context, 
is that Jesus says there is much dancing and celebrating in heaven over just one sinner that repents. I mean, this is what gets God stoked, is when someone far from God or someone who thinks they're far from God repents. And really that definition of what is repentance, it's doing a full 180 and turning back from what has been getting our attention, pulling us from God. It's saying, Lord, by your power, by your strength, and really understanding this, there's grace in this. And if you do a word study of repentance, even itself, we find again and again that repentance is something God even brings about. It's not something we do for God, but that rather the Holy Spirit working on our life through the power of the word that leads us to this guilty place of saying, Lord, what have I done? And God who turns us back and says, maybe God would welcome me back, even if it's just as a servant living out on the, on the back 40. And he goes back to his father, not expecting anything. Maybe you're there today. Maybe your, your marriage is a wreck, and it's a wreck because of decisions you have made and intentionally made, and you got in the tunnel vision, and you thought, this is for me. This is all going to work out. This is going to make me happy. And you discovered that it wasn't what you thought it would be. And now your marriage is a mess because of decisions you've made, and you've been unfaithful. Maybe it's the sin of pornography. Maybe it's an affair. Maybe it's an, an addiction of some sort that's a substance that has gotten your first love and you have made a mistake. But it's not like you just walked into it. You chose it and you know it. And you're in a broken place today because you think there's no hope for you. Maybe for you it's an ongoing cycle of events or a shame cycle and you res relate to that really well because you know it. You know how you avoid God. You know how you've run from God. You know that this is not where you want to be. And God is tugging on your heart today to turn back. What is God's reaction going to be? I know this young girl named Jody. she... She didn't really want it to happen this way, but it, it, it just escalated in their home. It was, she was 17 years old, and, and as tensions as a teenager started to just go off the charts with her parents, um, she would often run away for a day or so, return, and they'd work things out. But this time was different, and their, her parents knew this time was different. This time it escalated out of control, slamming of doors, there was, there was pushing, there was shoving, and she left. And she, she just ran away, and, and the parents thought, we will never see her again. And they're just, their hearts just ached. They thought, we've got to find her. We've got to find her. And, and, and they sought to find her, but they couldn't. You know, days turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months. They started contacting relatives. They contacted friends. If anybody had heard from her, nobody had heard. They didn't know where to look. They didn't know where to find her. They feared the worst. As those months came close to a year. And meanwhile, this young lady, she went off and she started to sell her body. And with that money, not only to try and find a place to sleep, she was attractive, she could find places to, to stay, and, and that was no problem, especially if she just charged the cost of her body. It, it, it worked for a while. It kept her out of her parents' house. She thought, this is, this is going to show them. And, and yet there was a brokenness and an emptiness that continued to develop in her. And she thought maybe, maybe drugs, maybe drinking would, would be the answer. And that only made things worse. She became addicted. And the money that she'd make, she'd only just spend on more drugs. And, and there she was 
months into a year later just waking up being overwhelmed with guilt and shame. She longed for home. She wanted to go back. But she figured it was too late. She figured there's no way her parents would welcome her. So she had an idea. She thought if there was a chance, if there was any chance at all, she would do it in a way that, that would really be safe. She, she knew the, the train station that was near her home, the Amtrak station, and, and she'd get a ticket to, to go down that rail line and come back from where she had been living in the city. And, and the plan was she knew how the, the tracks would turn around that corner near her, her home, and, and, and it was there. There was a, a grove of trees, and, and she told her parents, if she wrote a, a letter, and, and she just said, I, I want to come home. I know what I've done, I, I know how I've hurt you. If there's any chance that you'd welcome me home in any way, I, I know I don't deserve it. If you would just tie, tie a pink ribbon on the tree, one of those trees that goes by the train station at her house. And she waited, and she told them the date in the letter, what day she'd be coming through, and, and, and she also said, P.S., if, if, if if I can't come home, it's okay. Just don't tie a ribbon. I'll just keep going. I'll just keep going. I, I won't come back. I promise. I, I won't come back. I won't trouble you. I'll, I'll just be out of your life. And, and that day finally came. She waited and she waited. And when that day finally came, she got on the train and, and just her stomach was churning, just wondering what the reaction of her parents would be. She, she was fearful of the worst. She thought, what if there's no ribbon there? I, I don't expect it. Why would they welcome me back after all I have done? Why would they welcome me? And, and, and she waited. And, and as the train came, and, and finally after a couple hours on, in the train, it, it, it got to that part on the, on the tracks. She knew it well because she played on those tracks as a kid. And, and she knew exactly where it made that turn and, and where that grove of trees was. And, and she waited and, and waited. And, and as the train came around and of course from the car where she was she couldn't quite see around the corner until the train made it all the way around and she thought if only there's just one ribbon just one ribbon that would remind me that that I'm still loved if only there would be and and her longing for that and as the train grounded that corner not only was there one ribbon but every tree every branch was just covered in pink ribbons all saying come home come home she burst into tears of joy. No, our father welcomes his son. Doesn't even give him a chance to say, forgive me for what I've done. No, he runs to his son. He kisses him. You don't do that if you're a father in those days. But he does because he loves his boy. And our father loves you. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we would be children of God, and that is what we are. Praise be to God, a Father who welcomes his children home. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, we ask your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness here today. But we know we got that because you have said it. Your word promises that you are a God who welcomes sinners home. And Lord, we pray that you would help us today to not only experience that and know it, but believe it, that your word is true. As we celebrate and give thanks as wayward children, wayward sons, brought home to your embrace. Thank you for this gift. In Jesus' name, amen.